the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the February 2015 podcast. This month, we'll hear from researchers about a new study charting the mental and physical scars of human trafficking. The interviewees have gone through very difficult situations from which they couldn't escape with repetitive episodes of violence. How the neglected tropical disease, yours, may be eradicated by 2020. The wonderful thing about it is that one dose given by mouth seems to be enough to cure yours. And pioneering women. We encounter the stories of women who made valiant contributions to global public health. Corsets must be washable and easy fitting. Mosquito boots are a must. Trafficking of human beings is a crime of global proportions, involving extreme forms of exploitation and abuse. It has been estimated that as many as 18 million people may have been coerced against their will into sectors such as the sex industry, fishing and factories. Until now, little research has been done into the health implications for trafficked people. However, a newly published survey in the Lancet Global Health has revealed the severe mental and physical problems experienced by trafficked men, women and children in Southeast Asia. We spoke to the lead author of the study, the school's Dr. Lija Kiss, and in Cambodia, co-author Brett Dixon from the International Organisation for Migration. We interviewed 1,102 people, of which 1,015 reached destination. The survey was conducted in Cambodia, Vietnam and Thailand. Um, the men were mainly trafficked into fishing, and the main destinations where adult males were going were Indonesia and China. Children, girls were trafficked mainly into sex work. The main destination was Thailand. The boys were trafficked into fishing as well and into begging, begging on the streets in Thailand mostly. And women in Vietnam, adult women were trafficked mainly as brides to China. How do you go about setting up a study like this? There's over a thousand people that you you spoke to. How do you get those people in the first place? So we conducted a research in post-trafficking assistance service, services. They are shelters, um, many government shelters, NGOs providing care and assistance to people after they escaped or been rescued from a trafficking situation. We work very closely with our partners in this research, the IOM, the International Organization for Migration. So here in Cambodia, IOM is an intergovernmental organization. We focus on a number of different areas, both mostly protection and prevention of, of trafficking. In a lot of the rural areas, there's not enough employment and men and women are both choosing to migrate based on having no employment. Migration becomes a, a, a type of strat coping mechanism or coping strategy to, to support themselves and their, their family members back in Cambodia. Usually the initial migration is, is a voluntary decision. They, they'll either approach by brokers or they approach brokers themselves. Usually the brokers uh, promise a lot of good things uh, in terms of a type of salary or uh, working in, in a factory in Thailand mainly. When they arrive, they're handed off to 
usually other middlemen, other brokers that keep them sometimes in a, in a house without allowing them to go. A lot of the men talk about turning up at a, at, a, at a fishing port when the original promise was that they were going to a factory or, or an agricultural job. Um, before they know it, they're being coerced onto, onto a boat. And from that point, once they're on a the boat, they're taken out to sea, uh, usually out to a larger boat where they, once they're on that boat, that boat can travel out of Thailand into, into Malaysian waters. Um, it could spend, we've had men ranging from a few months on boats to 13 years on a boat. The interviewees have gone through very difficult situations from which they couldn't escape for long periods of time with repetitive episodes of violence, working overtime, living in very difficult conditions, overcrowded room with poor basic hygiene, many times not having enough to eat or drinkable water. And specifically in some sectors, for example, the fishermen was were in, I think, the worst conditions in our sample. Some of them fall sick or, or there's an accident, there's very little uh, health care. So a lot of the men endure the conditions for, for, for how long in hope that they will get paid, but many of them don't get paid. Uh, there's constant threats and violence. Um, I think it was 56% within the Cambodians sample experience both physical and emotional violence and uh, psychological impact and on on them from the steam study also show that there's a high issue of anxiety and depression after being returned in some cases i think 44 percent of women experiencing some sexual violence more than half of children experience one or the other either sexual or physical violence so not just physical scars but deep mental and emotional scars? Yeah, so we, we measured symptoms associated with PTSD, depression and anxiety. And for all of them, we had almost half of our sample reporting levels that are associated with these mental health conditions. Exit the trafficking situation either by jumping ship, by swimming for it, or in some cases the, the, the vessels have docked in in a remote area in Indonesia, for example, on an island and to get supplies and the men choose to get the, the courage to kind of escape the boat, appeal for assistance. It made me think a lot, looking at the findings, that these people are, go, are going back to the same communities and to the same realities that they found that once pushed them out to try and find a better life. They might think they didn't succeed this time, but next time it will be better and something might happen differently. So I think it also calls for uh, urgent prevention efforts and to understand what is it that we can do to prevent these cases because it is still an under-researched area. There is very little evaluation research and very little evidence on what to do. And, and what do you hope happens with those answers? What do you hope the NGOs and the, and the government organisations do with this uh, information? So um, I hope that we will understand better the magnitude of the problem, the risks associated with trafficking, the needs of trafficked people in terms of health care and of social reintegration, 
to be able to address these issues in a more appro appropriate manner. Because at the moment, there is a lot of money going into trafficking policy, and not much is known about what to do and how to do it and what works once it's done. So yeah, my hope is that this data is going to help inform better targeted initiatives. That was Dr. Leisha Kiss and Brett Dixon. And you can listen to an extended version of that interview on the school's website, lshtm.ac.uk. Yours is a chronic neglected tropical disease that mainly affects children in poor, remote areas. It's caused by a bacteria which is transmitted by skin-to-skin -skin contact, causing weeping ulcers and severe bone deformities. It's prevalent in 12 countries, in areas where people have poor sanitation and little access to healthcare services. However, a study published this month demonstrates that one round of mass treatment with a single-dose oral drug, azithromycin, greatly reduces the transmission and prevalence of yours. These results suggest the WHO strategy to eradicate the disease by 2020 could be achieved. David Maybe, who is Professor of Communicable Disease at the school, told us more about the disease and the study. Yours is caused by a bacterium very similar, if not identical, to that which causes syphilis. But it's not a sexually transmitted disease, unlike syphilis. It's spread mainly among children through skin-to-skin -skin contact in warm, humid places where children are playing together Hygienic standards may not be very high. And like syphilis, it causes different stages of disease. So there's a primary stage at the site where the bacterium is inoculated into the skin. And that's where the skin breaks down an ulcer. And that will heal after a few weeks, but then the infection spreads around the body and you get secondary yours where there may be ulcers or skin lesions anywhere on the body and the bones may also be infected so painful infection of the bones. Would you say the primary burden is on children then? So it's children who are normally infected. In the old days again like syphilis there was a tertiary stage so after the secondary stage the patient would usually have no symptoms but would still be infected so latent infection and then years later they may develop tertiary yours. So what, what would you say is the sort of current burden overall, worldwide? Well, we don't really know. Yours had a lot of attention in the 1950s. It was the first disease targeted for eradication by the World Health Organization when it was set up after the Second World War. And huge progress was made. It was believed at that time there were about 50 million cases, and that was reduced to less than 5 million during the 1950s and 60s through a mass treatment campaign with penicillin injections. But since then, it's kind of fallen off the agenda until recently. So nobody was reporting it really or publishing anything on it. Though there have been some successes. So um, India declared they had eradicated yours in, I think, 2007. And Ecuador also said in the late 1990s that they had eradicated it. 
And since then, nobody's really been looking for it very much. So why has the WHO now targeted for eradication by 2020? Because of a paper published by Oriel Mitcher, who's a Spanish doctor working in Papua New Guinea, and he did a randomized controlled trial comparing the traditional treatment of injectable penicillin with a single dose of an oral antibiotic called azithromycin, and he showed they were equivalent. Now, obviously, if you can cure yours with, an, with a, a few tablets rather than an injection, that is a big advance. So shortly after that paper was published, the WHO convened a meeting in 2012, and they declared that they were going to eradicate yours by 2020. So the, the new study that's being published in the New England Journal of Medicine, can you just describe a little bit of the methodology and how that took place? So this study was done on Lihia Island, which is an island off the coast of Papua New Guinea, part of Papua New Guinea, uh, but not the mainland. And this was where the original randomized control trial was done comparing azithromycin with penicillin. So what was done in this study was an attempt was made to treat everyone on the island with a single dose of azithromycin. And they achieved pretty high coverage, more than 80%. And then a year later, they examined a random sample of people and took blood from them to see whether they had latent yaws. And they found that the prevalence had gone down very significantly. There are obvious advantages in um, trying to eliminate a disease from an island, but I think, you know, because that's where the original study was done and the study team was still there. Can you talk a little bit more about azithromycin itself, how it's administered, how often do people need to take it? The wonderful thing about it is that one dose given by mouth seems to be enough to cure yours, and azithromycin has been widely used for the control of trachoma. So there was a study done by my colleagues and me at the school in the early 1990s showing that one dose of azithromycin was an effective treatment for trachoma. At that time, it was a new and expensive antibiotic made by Pfizer, but we persuaded Pfizer to donate it to trachoma control programs. And as a result of that, WHO declared a target for eliminating blinding trachoma by 2020 as a public health problem. So since then, 350 million doses have been donated by Pfizer for trachoma control. And so, you know, we have a lot of experience of mass treatment treating whole communities. It's a very safe drug, has very little in the way of side effects, and people are happy to take it because it is very effective against a range of infections. That was Professor David Maybe. If you were to visit the school's Keppel Street building in London, you'll see a frieze depicting the names of 23 pioneers of medicine. None of them are women. However, the school archives are alive with stories of women who made valiant contributions to the advance of global public health. A special school event, Archive Alive, Peter Mine, introduced some of the correspondence and writings of the remarkable women who lived and thrived alongside the men of science. Tell 
Marjorie that the best materials for evening dresses are soft satin and good quality crepe de chine. A liberal supply of underwear, especially calico drawers. Corsets must be washable and easy fitting. Mosquito boots are a must. I'm Victoria Craner, I'm the archivist and records manager. I'm Rebecca Tremaine and I am one of the devisers of the Archive Alive project. I'm Penelope Diamond and I'm an actress and I was invited to take part in the project by Rebecca. I guess to start with, Rebecca, if you can explain, what is this all about? This is about unearthing the archive and breathing life into it and introducing it to people who wouldn't necessarily normally come into an archive room, I suppose. And I guess the, my other question is, what's in the archive, Victoria? We have lots of stories about women who were involved in the growth and the advance of tropical medicine. And what's interesting about this project is it's maybe they may not be the big names, some of them. They may kind of be, be hidden within the, the collections of other more renowned people. So archives arrive through lots of different ways, but it's really people that are involved in the promotion and the prevention of tropical diseases and public health. Tell me about the three women. Who have you focused on in this event? The first story uh, is, is Amy Carpenter. And we have this wonderful journal, which is like a scrapbook that she and her husband, Geoffrey, wrote together. And I love it because it's, some of it is, is just their lovely writing in their little fountain pen. And then there are pictures of when they get engaged and then there's a notice from the newspaper. And it's all the sort of ephemera of their life together. And what I love about somebody like Amy is, although nobody re really knows about her, she was there. She was getting malaria. She was going up the river. She was on the safari. She was in the hospital with Geoffrey by his side. And it, he's, it's very clear from what he says about her that he really needs her there. So I think these women play as important a part as the men, but just don't always get written down. And how about Mary Kingsley? Tell me about her. Mary Kingsley, we just had to have because we just loved her self-effacing sense of humour. I mean, people will know much more about her than I do. And I'm sure somebody would come and maybe say we've been a bit liberal with our use of her tone of voice. But I think she seemed incredibly important because she just gets on a cargo ship and sails to Sierra Leone and mm. unpacks her portmanteau and gets on with it. Like, I presume, many women of her time, her the destiny that she had prescribed for her was that she would stay in Islington and possibly support her, her brother, who was the man who, took, who inherited the family fortune and everything. But her father had been um, an anthropologist and she really wanted to live out his legacy. So she just up sticks and goes. But what I really like about her is that you read her writing and she's, it's full of sen her sense of humour. You know, gosh, you've got to be a better looking person than I am to wear that sort of contraption. You know, there's a bit of fun. And I think really for me, that's what this is about. It's, it's with, with respect to these women, enjoying and having a bit of fun with their legacy so that people come and they go, Oh yes, they weren't just these stiff Victorian women in crinolines. They, they, they had a sense of humour. They, they had beating hearts, and that's what I want to, to get going. The beating heart of the archive. The ladies are divided into three classes. The young girl you address as Titi. 
the young person as sister, the more mature charmer as mammy. But I do not advise you to employ these terms when you are on your first visit, because you might get misunderstood. There's the, the third character who, Penny, you brought to life so wonderfully. Tell me a bit about her. Um, Lady, Lady Simpson. Yes, no, she, she's extraordinary. Um, she's so um, forthright in her letters. I hadn't really taken in the picture of her until today, but she looks the most extraordinary woman, um, wearing a fantastic hat and, and, and obviously very much in control of, of every situation she should come across, I should think, and probably a bit scary to live with. I imagine. 17th of April, 1917. Dear Mrs. Simpson, will you kindly send me a good example of your anti-mosquito hood to send out to the front? A written statement giving its price, where it can be purchased, and its advantages should be added. Hurriedly yours, Professor R. Ross. <laughs> 19th of April, 1917. Dear Sir Ronald, very many thanks for your order. Elmwood, the tropical equipment people, are making some models, but they are very slow, and the one I have seen is not as good as my own. I am sending you my model for you to show to the war office. On second thoughts, I have come to the conclusion that you may mention my name to them. <clears throat> Tell me about her letters and what she was trying to do. Her husband was, I think I'm right in saying Victoria, he was a, uh, was a, a teacher here at school. Yeah. And so she obviously was um, supported him, was very interested. And I imagine she thought, well, what's needed is this helmet. And I'm going to, Dolly will have a go at doing it myself. So she designed this helmet, which to my uh, eye sounds, seems probably sure it was the best helmet, you know. And I really admire her kind of steel at kind of pushing it through because, you know, being a woman, it was, it would have been harder to be taken seriously. And um, I think it's fantastically bold to sort of write to these people and say, look, my helmet's the best and you jolly well do it. But she also, um, I, when I saw the picture, I thought, oh yes, she really is a fantastic creature. I mean, she just looks marvellous. I just, I would love to have met her. I hope she's looking down saying, <laughs> not bad, not bad. And if you're at the school in the coming weeks, keep an eye out for items on display in the foyer, exploring the work of women in science. Visit the school's website at lshtm.ac.uk to find out more. And you'll also find extended interviews, videos and slideshows. Next month, more groundbreaking research and news from the school. Thanks for listening.